Emma Harding Britton was a leading figure of American occultism, although she's only recently begun to receive much credit for her role in leading the transition from the spiritualist to the occult to the New Age. A British immigrant to the U.S., she started life as an actor. She became a spiritualist medium, but she had worked as an occult clairvoyant back in the mother country while treading the boards. She was not entirely silent about her occult career, but she said very little about it. It was during her early occult days that Britain first met the Chevalier Louis de B, but she wouldn't become his publisher until decades later when she'd crossed the Atlantic. Understanding the truth beneath the Chevalier's career requires a deep dive into one of the most interesting mediums among a host of very interesting mediums in the 19th century, specifically in America. My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am the Supreme Hierophant of the Sacred Order of Alchemical Actors, and I'm here with my co-host and the Grand Master of the Order, Olivia Litterall. Hello. It's just us today. Just the two of us. <laughs> I don't want to sing the rest of it, because, you know, we don't own that. <laughs> no, no. Uh, we could probably make it if we try, though. Uh, we we have been so far. <laughs> as far as I've known you, we've, you know... Yeah, we'll get into that. So um, today, Emma Harding Britain is our topic. So this is, uh, I am one of the few scholars of Amer- Emma Harding Britain in uh, the world. So I believe you. Area of expertise. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I just that's so never, surprising. you're the only person that ever has said her name. And anytime I ever say her name since, no one knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, I'm so. going to change that with this episode. See, I wanted to get to her in the uh, the first series, and uh, she she connects up with our episode about the Chevalier, and and uh, sort of puts this whole story together. I think uh, she brings everybody together: Blavatsky, the whole nine yards. So uh, let's pledge it up and get into it. We, the members, the members of, the of the Secret, secret order, order of Alchemical, of alchemical actors, actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. Yeah, a little quiet with just the two of us. Yeah, I feel like I messed up more with just the two of us somehow. But <laughs> more pressure. It was weird. So before we get into it today, we want to remind everyone to... Uh, Subscribe, uh, but also to review if you are on a platform that allows for reviewing or drop us a review on Facebook. That's also good. There is an intense debate going on on at least three continents right now about whether or not this podcast sucks. So go ahead and join. Join the debate, especially if you're listening to this episode, then I'm guessing you probably must align with the this doesn't suck camp. Mm -hmm. So let's hear from you. Yes, please. We need more of you. Basically, uh, the argument, for, as far as I can tell, and we have overwhelmingly positive reviews, let me say that, and I'm very grateful for all the very positive reviews we have, but there's a small minority of folks who uh, think that there's too much chatter in addition to, I guess, me talking. Yeah. I do think that we keep this to a minimum, but let me say, my whole goal in the format of this podcast was to tread somewhere between the line where, you know, all it is is banter for an hour and a half and the line where it's just one guy talking. Because when I listen to one guy talking, I don't know about you, Olivia, but like I can focus for a while, but then my brain starts to drift off. I'll go to sleep. Right? Yeah. When I listen to three guys just like bantering at each other for an hour and a half, I get very frustrated because whatever the topic is, I feel like I barely hear it. So I've tried to navigate between those poles so that you're not like drifting off because all you're listening to is me. That's why we got Olivia running the show here on the side. But also, uh, so that you're you're not having to wait for information because we're giving it to you. 
<laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that that's where we're at here. And, and Olivia is going to be doing some episodes of her own coming up, and uh, it's going to be more or less the same thing. We're committed to this format, friends. This is what we're doing. <laughs> this is us. Take us or leave us. I guess if you have to drop that one-star review, like whatever, but our five-star friends are far outnumbering you, and we'll be happy to argue with you. And if you are one such five-star friend, the trolls never cease. Go forth and defend us, please. <laughs> I think we work best as as our tribe, and if that just like isn't your thing, then um, that's, fine. that's it, because we would yeah. not work, I feel like, if we didn't. I certainly could just read these scripts, you know, just yeah. do the episodes, but sure. I, it would not be fun. And I, I, I don't want to. I don't like the product. I don't I don't like how it sounds and it's all done. I like some podcasts that are just one guy. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but I have limited patience for them. So I'm just doing take... it. Th- we're doing it this way. Yeah. It, otherwise, it's just one of your lectures. Right. Who wants that? Yeah, we already some of us already did that. <laughs> Let's get into it. Emma Harding Britton did not officially recognize her mediumistic skills until she immigrated to America and fell in with the nascent spiritualist circles percolating in the mid-1850s in New York. By her own account, she was reluctant to transition from a career in acting to a career in mediumship. An acquaintance at the boarding house she was living in with her mother took her to her first seance on Canal Street, and she responded very badly to what she witnessed there, and she ran away. She claims that she ran away at the mention of the Bible, which she worried was sacrilegious. In Britain's account of herself as a reluctant medium, an actor friend named Mr. Fenno convinced her to try one more seance and brought her to see another medium. This medium's name was Ada Foy, and she was also located on Canal Street. Unwilling to believe that the rappings the medium was producing were real, Britain looked for the springs causing the tapping sounds under the table, So she flipped the table over, which was very rude of her. She searched the floorboards. She looked under her own chair. She's looking for all these, these, you know, mechanical contrivances that could be causing these mysterious taps. She was unable to find any natural explanation for the sounds, and she began to communicate with them and to believe in them. And the medium Foy told Britain that Britain would become a great medium herself. Britain's mother was reluctant to allow her to change careers from actor to medium. Actor is a respectable profession, but medium? I don't know. I don't know how my mom would feel, honestly, if I was like, (laughs) hey. Well, actually, she's a big Sylvia Brown fan back in the day, so I don't know if she still is. I'm not, you know, trying to put that on my mom, but. (laughs) So if you came and you were like, no more BA in theater, it's BA in medium now. Yeah, like. I'm getting on TV. She'd probably be like, okay, that's fine. So Britain experimented with table tilting in her apartment and brought her mother to watch this experiment. And that's what persuaded her. So that's your trick, Olivia. That's how you get it done. I think my mom at that point would be like, okay, maybe stop. (laughs) She uh, made the table move in front of her mother and she caused the tapping sound to happen. And her mother was like, I'm amazed you can be a medium now. Yeah. So she began as a test medium. And what that means is she gave proof that it was really, for example, your grandmother or great uncle communicating with you from beyond the grave um, with a message, you know, of, you know, like a, a ring that your grandmother gave you or, you know, your great uncle's hair color, things that only you would know and that you like needed to talk to the spirits to know about. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's what a test medium did. They sort of proved it to you with evidence. 
but eventually her spirits told her that it was time to abandon test mediumship for a higher calling, and she became a touring inspirational medium. Uh, This means that she would drop into a trance state, and then she would communicate these basically like lectures or sermons from the stage on the nature of the spirit world and, you know, the evolution of humanity and all sorts of stuff. Is that like an upgrade of like a career choice or is it just like the same basically? It, it tends to be. I think that as far as like a celebrity medium, these were mediums like if it, your tapping medium would perform in a parlor for like eight people. Your trance medium would perform in a music hall or a lecture hall for oh. like a hundred people or 200 people. So it's a higher degree of prestige and fame anyway. Yeah. Much of Britain's story is familiar in the biographies of other mediums. The seance was a popular entertainment in the 1850s, and many mediums discovered their hidden talent for spirit communication soon after being exposed to the possibility. Parents responded variously to their children's gifts. Transmedium Cora Scott Richmond's parents embraced her abilities, but physical medium Daniel Dunglass Hume's relatives threw him out of the house. And I do mean Daniel Dunglass Hume. Some people are like, is it Douglas? No, it's Dunglass. It's Scottish middle name. So they believed that Daniel was trafficking with the devil. So you'd never know what you're going to get from your parents. That's oh. that's very true. <laughs> Still true today. Yeah, that hasn't changed. What makes Britain's story strange, if not fishy, is that this wasn't her first encounter with supernatural forces. Unlike Cora Scott Richmond and Daniel Hume, where their very first supernatural you know, communication was with these spirits of the dead, um, as it turns out, um, in Britain's autobiography which was finished and published by her sister after Britain died, she alluded to, but never detailed, her membership in a secret society of occultists before she left England for America. And there's a distinction here to be made between occultist and spiritualist. For our purposes on the podcast, we talk about spiritualists as occultists. And, you know, that fits the sort of broad scholarly definition. They're, you know, engaging with supernatural forces here in the material world, and they're producing evidence and all that sort of good stuff. But in the 19th century, in the 1870s and 80s, there was a distinction made between occultism and spiritualism. And the distinction was the spiritualists talked to the dead, whereas occultists were interacting with some other supernatural force, not necessarily dead people. So secret occult brotherhoods really did exist in Europe in the 19th century. They didn't begin with the Golden Dawn. And Britain belonged to a secretive occult circle in her youth. So we're, we're, I think, most familiar with the occult revival of the 1880s, 1890s, 1900, Aleister Crowley and Mathers and all these sorts of characters. But they date back all the way to the 1850s and 1840s and perhaps even earlier. And those were the societies that Britain engaged with. She told me of one case when the London body wished to send a message to an associated body in Vienna. She was given this message left her physical body and appeared to the group in Vienna in her astral body, was recognized by them, delivered her message and received their answer, then, returning to London, took possession of her physical body and delivered the answer. In 1860, she mentions what she calls a thousand weird peculiarities from my youth, which she now sees in the clear light of spiritual impression, but makes no specific mention of any Orphic society or occult experimentation, before coming to New York. So that's who she was with. She was with the Orphic Society, Society of Orpheus. 
She appears, Britain herself appears in Ghostland, the Chevalier's book, as a mirror-gazing clairvoyant for the Orphic Circle. If you haven't listened to our episode on Ghostland yet, now's the time. Stop this episode. Go back and listen to that one. Then this episode will both make a lot more sense and be more amazing to you when we finish it. Yeah. (laughs) So the Chevalier says that this episode between him and Emma Harding Britton took place 20 years before he sat down to write his autobiography, Ghostland. And the first chapters of that book were published in 1872. This means that Britton was gazing on elemental demons and celestial angels no more than three years before she was appalled and scandalized at the Canal Street seance, driving her out into the street with her pearls at full clutch in 1856. So you following me? Chevalier's got this scene where she's, you know, talking to a demon through a mirror that, you know, he's conjuring into being. The Chevalier's conjured this demon into being, but, you know, she's sort of acting as a medium for him for this elemental entity in the mirror. And this is happening in 1852. But the story that I just told you about her becoming a medium happened in 1856. So why is she acting so scandalized in 1856 if she was doing weird occulty mirror gazing stuff in 1852? Make it make sense. I'm going to (laughs) try. It is possible that Britain recanted her involvement in the Orphic Circle and recommitted herself to a strictly Protestant Christian mindset, right? That could have happened. Yeah, She could have said, I'm done with this occulty stuff. I'm all on with the Bible now. And then when she went to the seances, she came around to spiritualism when she realized it held higher truths about the immortality of the soul. Could make sense. So she went from occultism to Christianity to spiritualism. This, our occult listeners and our occulty and third way listeners, Wiccan listeners, like we can identify. We go through different belief traditions trying to find the one that most speaks to us. So Ghostland is in large part the story of the Chevalier overcoming the conviction among Europe's various occult circles in the United Kingdom and France and Germany that the soul was not in fact eternal. Now, this becomes the sort of crux of the difference between Britain's 1852 occultism and her 1856 spiritualism. In her autobiography, Britain says that the Orphic Circle told her explicitly there were no such things as spirits, only elementaries and angels, or elementals, I guess, elemental beings. The apparitions that were seen in human shape were nothing more than shades, resulting from the pernicious custom of earthly interments instead of cremation. Cremation annihilates the astral body along with the physical, but burial results in a concomitant decay between the astral and terrestrial parts of the individual, so that a cemetery is basically full of astral remnants decaying. Wait, so cremation is bad? Is that what you said? Cremation is actually less gross than interment. Yeah, okay, agreed. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, I guess generally, but so you have this astral spirit, and if I if you cremate your body, the astral spirit is also incinerated. Is that ba- so? That's bad, right? <laughs> well, it's not eternal. Is the argument of these occult circles? Okay. So they think it's not it's not so terrible if you just go ahead and just get it over with. I just because like, if don't. You, well, you don't want your astral remnants just in the ground, right? That doesn't sound good either. Yeah, if they're in the ground, then basically, like, if you go to a cemetery and you have this, like, second site where you can see the astral spirit, people's astral spirits, and you went to a cemetery, you would see these, like, astral spirits hovering above the graves, slowly decaying. Well, that's kind of sick. I'd like that to happen once, at least. You would like like to see that one time. (laughs) I would just like to, like, walk into a cemetery one day and just, like, whoa, hey, 
<laughs> that would be good. But but one time. The second time is too many. Well, you know, by the second time, then I'm going to, like, want to tell people, and then they'll come back, <laughs> and then they won't have it. Like, you know, and then it'll all look crazy. So. Becomes a whole thing. Yeah. We can imagine that Britain ran from the seance, figuring it was more of the same occultist atheism, right? So think about it. She mm-hmm. ran from that first seance, and she is clearly bothered by the atheism of the occultists who believe that you don't have a soul, you only have an astral spirit, and that it decays and dies or, you know, gets burned up. Yeah, I get it. So in her detailed history of the spiritualist movement, Britain claims to have been an occult hierophant earlier in her life, but that she had moved beyond what she calls the folly and superstition of these misguided circles. Oh, shit. Shade. But if Britain only converted to spiritualism because it replaced the Orphic circles, elementals, and angels with the eternal souls of the dead, why, I ask you, in the mid-1870s, did she join Helena Blavatsky and Henry Olcott's Theosophical Society? No, I, I couldn't say no to Blavatsky either. I'm sure if I met her. <laughs> Persuasive lady. I just, yeah, you know. Well, Britain was a very strong-willed person, too. I mean, the two of them yeah. are very strong-willed, like, publicity-garnering people. Mm. Um, so the thing about the Theosophical Society is, like, as a spiritualist medium, Britain's choice to join them, Blavatsky had pretty much was, and Alcott, had publicized this organization as a distinctly occultist organization. And Blavatsky was on the record saying that she believed that the spirit manifestations were the work of elemental spirits, not the spirits of the dead, but these elementals. Mm -hmm. So Britain knew that she was lining herself up with these people that the spiritualists were not so thrilled with. And then she went on to publish the Chevalier's books, which are very similarly interested in occultism. Mm. In the possibly fabricated image of a young Emma Harding Britain rushing down the stairs to escape the blasphemous pronouncements of spirits communicating from beyond the grave, that first scene that we opened with, I believe that the whole secret of Ghostland's narrative begins to come unraveled, and at last we learn the truth behind the Chevalier and the origins of the American occult. So, what follows now is a conversation on who the Chevalier Lewis to be really is, the authorship of Ghostland. So once more, if you haven't listened to the Ghostland episode, you're going to want to do that. Yeah, you should do that. In the 1870s, Britain took a big step to the side of strict spiritualist mediumship and joined the Theosophical Society, which we were just talking about, an organization officially devoted to taking a progressive view of religion and society and unofficially concerned with experimentation in practical occultism. Britain also experimented with the healing properties of electricity as an electrical physician. Okay, that's kind of scary. (laughs) She would... Pump you like, full of vaults. Like the images. That, yeah, no. And she published, well, I mean, electricity was very new at that time period. Like it was a new concept. We didn't have light bulbs just yet in the 1870s. We were working our way toward, you know, having light bulbs in our houses and electricity into our homes. So the but discovery of electricity, so, that you don't want it pumping your body. If it's foreign, then you don't want that. <laughs> Why would you? Okay. It's like the I new fun point. thing. Yeah. Well, so, the, so yeah, if you're like desperate for a cure, this this could be it. Yeah. Sure. Um, so, she published a series of articles along with the Chevalier's two volumes defending occult theories that often diverged from the relatively new principles of what we might call orthodox spiritualism. 
Those ideas included the medium's power to produce spirit doubles or doppelgangers, the existence of elementary or nature spirits lurking in caves and gardens, and the power of the occult will to produce supernatural phenomena. In contrast to spiritualism, she was suggesting a new form of occultism that well, went well beyond communication with the spirits of the dead. All of these ideas appeared in one form or another in the Chevalier's art magic. So, Ghostland is the autobiography. Art magic is the practical guide to occultism with some philosophy mixed in. Ghostland itself is in large part the story of the Chevalier overcoming the conviction among Europe's various occult circles in the UK, France, and Germany that the soul was not eternal. In her autobiography, Britain said that the Orphic Circle had told her there are no such things as immortal spirits, only elementary spirits and angels. Given her lifelong commitment to spiritualism after 1855, it's clear that Britain disagreed with the British occultist disbelief in the immortality of the soul spiritualism brought the eternal soul back into the picture, but it could not fully encapsulate Britain's understanding of the spiritual dimensions of the universe. The soul is what she was missing when she was an occultist with the Orphic Circle, right? So that atheism of the circle and the, you know, the astral spirits just decaying, that's what she didn't like about the old occultism. Yeah. So with spiritualism, she's like, oh, you guys have an eternal soul cool and you can talk to them super yeah awesome but she saw no reason to dispense with all the other supernatural ideas that she'd learned as an occultist can you see what do you see what i mean no i feel that like i really get that she picked up all these elemental spirits and mirror gazing and all this occult stuff and then she you know but they didn't have a soul so she had joined the spiritualist but then she was like but the, the elementals and all that that's real too yeah can we can we find some compromise here Make your own religion. Not easy to do. You know, philosophy, whatever, yeah. Always going to be a problem. Uh, (laughs) Always causes controversy. Tell me about it. Britain's spiritualist community was not willing to accept her blend of occultism and spiritualism. If we are not egregiously mistaken, this promised new revelation on mundane, supermundane, and submundane spiritualism is the beginning of a secret campaign against American spiritualism by the mighty demonic power the Jesuit order. The paste post and scissors have been most injudiciously used. A tyro in what the book pretends to discourage upon would have made a much better book. We behold the illumination of Emma Harding Britain's vigorous imaginative intellect. White magic is presented in all of its heavenly whiteness, and black magic is portrayed in all the lurid blackness of its alleged infernal origin. The recovery of this craft, known as magical spiritualism, has passed beyond the bounds of possibility. So many quotes. Back to back to back quote. We're quoting it up. We're quoting left and right here. In her posthumously published autobiography, Britain glossed over her experiments with the Orphic Circle in a paragraph and made no mention of either the Chevalier, the book she published under his name, or her work with the Theosophical Society in the 1870s. But six years earlier, in the second volume of Ghostland, she allowed her chevalier to describe a meeting with her when she was working as a test medium for Horace Day. At that meeting, he recognized her as a clairvoyant that he had first met working with the Orphic Circle in England, and, reunited in America, they traveled together to seances both rich and poor. 
on his journey, he found confirmation for his elementary spirits among the Native Americans along the Mississippi River who professed to believe in many beings intermediate between animals, birds, and men who were waiting to be born as men. Sound like elementals? And found occasion to repeat his assertion that God is the ever-existent central son of being. He even said that he was privileged to include Mrs. Harding Britton as amongst his associates in the schools of occultism in the present tense. Hmm. So, you know, deathbed-ish, she's writing an autobiography, very end of her life, she says nothing about occultism. But six years earlier, she's publishing the Chevalier stuff, and she's saying... You know, she's allowing him to put all this stuff in about how she is, is an, an occultist. Six years isn't a long time. We've known each other longer, Olivia. Wow. How about yeah. that? Hmm. That's freaky. pretty Pretty brief. Yeah. So she probably hasn't changed her mind, even though she's playing some games with her reputation in the autobiography. Yeah. Well, pretty much. Yeah, I get that. So there are some peculiar similarities between Britain's life story and the Chevalier's life story, which make it look an awful lot like she took her life story, changed the name and gender, and published it as the report of a secret occultist she called the Chevalier Louis Deby. Kind of reminds me of, like, Egyptian pharaohs. You know, how they, like... (laughs) would like rewrite like they would like rewrite their own like myth and lore and a lot (laughs) of times they would like like if they were women they would like change their like gender to like male like in history like um i'm trying to think of there's like the last one of the you know can't think of her name you know what i'm talking about (laughs) i I get the gist yeah yeah I don't know if that sounds alike to you, but it just sounds like no it to it, me. changing of gender, that sort of stuff. I mean, and it's a similar like you know the patriarchy. She's changing her gender yeah. up so she can be taken seriously. Yeah. So I mean, this is the secret, in my opinion. I I'm arguing here, and, and I argue elsewhere. In my opinion, the Chevalier Louis Deby, who was a major figure in early American occultism, was in fact Emma Harding Britton, the medium who claimed to be publishing him, but in fact just was him. I would buy that. There are some events, though, in the Chevalier's life that could not have happened to her, particularly his travels. No, I'm just like, immediately I'm like, I'll buy it. And then you like slap me with like, (laughs) here's the opposition. (laughs) I was like, oh, God, I shouldn't have bought that. All right, let's start with Scotland. Britain toured around Scotland, but it's difficult to pin down any record of a Scottish village experiencing anything like a mass possession in the 1850s. And this was the famous episode where the Chevalier purged these elemental demons who were plaguing this little Scottish town. Mm-hmm. Britain probably wouldn't have been touring the country at that point anyway in the 1850s. It's likely she adapted episodes like this one from other accounts of occult phenomena, in this case, Mortzine. So basically what I'm saying is the book is not just her life experiences, but it's her life experiences augmented with other stories that she just thinks illustrate her point. So she'll like steal things from the history of the occult in the second half of the 19th century and plop them into this book because they she likes them. Yeah, sure. Why not? She has some creative license, right? Because she invented the character. Yeah, I mean, that sounds fun. <laughs> So the Mortzine case uh, is an obvious parallel. More importantly, and she writes about the Mortzine case in her other books. All right, let me just do Mortzine in a nutshell here. Um, In Mortzine, Switzerland, 
around the year 1860, a girl begins running around aimlessly and climbing high trees and perching on rooftops like a gargoyle. And then over the next 10 days, women ranging in age from 7 to 50 were seized and were exhibiting crawling, climbing, leaping, wild singing, and furious swearing, and generally behaving like animals. Neither the church nor secular authorities could control these possessions, and eventually the victims were separated and dispersed to asylums around Europe. Never really got this under control. Elemental demons, in theory, cause their victims to behave like beasts, and mastering animal passions allows the adept to unfold an occult will that can resist and exorcise these demons. The Chevalier tells this story about going into a church in Scotland where particularly women and children are behaving in this fashion in the church and crawling around and acting like animals. And the chevalier uses his occult will to purge these elemental demons, to toss them out of the church and out of the bodies of everyone who's possessed. So the episodes parallel each other pretty much one-to-one. And we know Britain wrote about Mortsine in her book, 19th Century Miracles. So that's Mortsine. More importantly, she never visited India, the site where the Chevalier achieved his highest occult achievement, inducted by the highest order of occultists in the Ellora Caves. Britain was a world traveler, lecturing throughout the U.S. and in Canada, England, Scotland, and Australia, but there's no record of her ever going to Asia. If Britain is the Chevalier Lewis to be, where do her Indian stories come from? The first clue can actually be found in the work of Louis Jacolliot, a French national living in India. He was the author of a series of books about Indian culture, including Occult Science in India, which is originally published as Le Spiritisme dans le monde, la initiation et les sciences uh, occultes dans la Inde et chez tous les peuples de l'Antiquité. Do you get all that? God, that's a big title. <laughs> that was published in 1875. The French came to India around the same time as the British and for the same motives. The British East India Company had its French counterpart in the Compagnie, uh, and both had a presence in India, although the UK's was considerably larger and stronger. And that brings us to today's brief history, Olivia. Woo! Brief history! (laughs) That is a brief history of India and the West. India's first exchange with the West was Alexander the Great's failed invasion of the Punjab in 327 BCE. The trek was so grueling that he turned back at the Ganges, having made very little impact on Indian culture, apart from the decimation of of some armies in the Mauryan Empire, but that's a story for another day. The Portuguese arrived, right? (laughs) Can't get into that. Yeah, Yeah, that's, that's history. The Portuguese arrived around 1500, and the treasures they brought back from the subcontinent inspired English uh, and Dutch and eventually French merchants to begin traveling to India. A steady trickle of Indian artifacts and texts started to filter into Europe from the trade wars taking place into the 18th and 19th century, building up to the British colonial occupation of the subcontinent. Interest in Indian culture and religion began to pick up steam in the West through the second half of the 19th century, particularly with the publication of Max Muller's 50-volume translation of Sacred Books of the East. Then at the World's Parliament of Religions held in Chicago in 1893, Hatha Yoga, a modernized Vedic tradition utilizing physical positions to aid in meditative concentration, was introduced to Westerners for the first time. Oh, yoga. Okay, I get it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
What did you say? You thought it was something different? Shioga. Well, at first I was like, wow, that's a that's a fun name. And then it was like, huh, it sounds like he's describing yoga. And then I put the two together. I had a there moment. I'm here. Hello. And that's a brief history of India and the West. I don't want to get too far oh, into this. That's that was it. super brief. Got to keep it brief because we got all this Emma Harding Britain and Chevalier stuff to do. Mm, yes. So uh, Louis Jacalion. Uh, worked as a lawyer and a colonial judge, and he collected stories and experiences of Indian religion. During a several-month stay in Benares in Bengal, which is also known as Varanasi, I'm sure you know it better as Varanasi, Olivia. Yep, heard of of her. (laughs) There, it's a place. Yeah, I know. (laughs) He met a fakir named Konvindasami, who was visiting Benares to perform funeral rites on the banks of the Ganges for a wealthy Hindu client. Konvindasami offered to visit Jakolia every day during his three weeks of ritual ablutions in honor of the dead and to perform various occult feats for him. So this is a true story. This is this guy's like travel journal. He's writing what happened to him in India. Konvindasami levitated. He moved furniture and water through his magnetic influence, and he caused plants to grow in a shortened space of time. This should sound very familiar because these are the exact same feats achieved by the fakirs, F-A-K-I-R-S, in Isis Unveiled, Blavatsky's book, and also in the Chevalier's Art Magic. He then planted the seed in the earth, which was now in a state of liquid mud, thrusting his seven-knotted stick. I had been waiting a couple of hours, and the sun was fast sinking below the horizon, when a low sigh startled me. Removing the muslin that hid the flower pot, he then pointed out to me a young stalk of pawpaw, fresh and green, and nearly eight inches high. The Chevalier says... If that small twig placed in the earth is fed and irrigated by the akasa, which men and spirits pour out upon it in vast abundance, then it waits not the process of nature, but springs up at once, shoots flowers, and bears seeds, and dies. Exact same situation. Jacoliat mentions that the fakir's magic resembles the spontaneous vegetation practiced by Tibetan lamas, and detailed in the travel journal of the French Catholic missionary Evariste Regis Houk. Hooks, two-volume Souvenir d'un voyage dans la Tatarie, la Tibet et la Chine pendant les années... I'm not going to do these in French. 1844-1845-1846, which was translated into English um, and published as Travels in Tartary, Tibet, and China in 1851. It tells the story of barbarous and diabolical ceremonies performed by the Tibetan lamas that Hook encountered on his journey. Hook's story is, much like Jacoliat's, very similar to something we see in the Chevalier's art magic. In a few minutes, the Chevalier says the gesticulations of the fakirs increased almost to frenzy. Meantime, their monotonous chant rose into shrieks and yells so frightful that to the ears of the listeners were the ears of the listeners were deafened and their senses distracted by the clamor. And as the cries were at their height, the lama seized the long glittering knife which he had laid across his knees and drew it across the length of the abdomen. After he disembowels himself, the fakirs interrogate the lama while he's holding his guts in his arms. Then he puts himself back together, wipes the blood off, and it's all over. Writing about his travels across China to Tibet more than 20 years earlier than the Chevalier publishes his book, Everest Hook describes how his party comes across a large pilgrimage working its way toward the city of Rosh Charin. He stops an old man carrying a heavy pack and offers to put the man's pack on his camel. The grateful old man explains that everyone is going to Rosh Charin to see a remarkable manifestation that will be performed by one of the many itinerant lamas wandering Tartary. 
As the recitation of the prayers proceeds, you see the Bakhti trembling in every limb and gradually working himself up into frenetic convulsions. The Lamas themselves become excited, then voices are raised, their song observes no order and at last becomes a mere confusion of yelling and outcry. Then the Bakhti suddenly throws aside his scarf which envelops him, unfastens his girdle and seizing the sacred knife, slits open his stomach in one long cut. And just like with the Chevaliers, Fakir, uh, or Lama, he puts himself back together again like it never happened. So even the broad outline of Chevalier's tale mirrors another earlier story. So before I get into this, are you seeing the argument I'm putting down here, Olivia? We've got Britain's life story, which is going into the Chevalier's book. We've got these random episodes from, you know, these various travel journals and, and accounts of India and Scotland, well, Switzerland, really, that she's just plucking and putting into his book. Now we're getting to the, the real meat of it here. Her, her occult associate in the 1850s, a man by the name of Edward Bulwer-Lytton, he wrote what's considered one of the first occult novels of the 19th century, and uh, the name of that book was Zanoni. Zanoni arguably inspired a whole vast tradition of occult literature and, and is arguably responsible for a lot of the enthusiasm for occultism in the latter part of the 19th century. Bulwer-Lytton actually wrote a bunch of occult books, and, and I think we need to do a whole episode about him later, but we'll get there. So his book Zanoni, the first occult novel, told the story of an occultist who had lived many centuries, having escaped death by confronting the demonic dweller of the threshold— but yeah, right. Spooky. But Zanani makes the mistake of falling in love and the woman he loves gets caught up in the French Revolution. Always a bad idea. Desperate to save her, Zanoni performs the old switcheroo, putting himself in her place at the gallows. Apparently they didn't notice. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> right? His sacrifice, which would go on to inspire the ending of Charles Dickens' own revolutionary novel, A Tale of Two Cities. That's a true story. Dickens read Zanoni, and then he was like, I got to use that. Huh. Requ- Spoiler alert, I guess. I don't remember that. I read it in school, but couldn't tell you, there's couldn't the two tell guys you what it's about. That, the two guys look very much alike. And Well, anyway, we won't ruin it for everyone who wants to read it now. <laughs> <laughs> we won't ruin Charles Dickens. We won't ruin Dickens for you. Um, So it required that Zanoni overcome his aversion to death by discovering and embracing that his soul would ascend to an afterlife. Let me say that again. In order for him to sacrifice himself on the gallows, Zanoni had to overcome his fear of death. Basically, the reason that he'd lived so long for hundreds and hundreds of years is because he didn't want to die. And it was because he didn't necessarily believe that there was an immortal soul. But when he embraced that idea, when he finally accepted it, he was able to sacrifice himself and save his loved one. In Bulwer-Lytton's novel, occultists fear death because they don't necessarily believe in the immortality of the soul, and his main character must come to believe in the soul and an afterlife to adequately play the hero. The plot hinges on overcoming disbelief in an afterlife. Is this sounding at all familiar? Exactly like like the story of the Chevalier. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, um, like, Faustus, too, a little... Like, not really, but, you know, yeah, it's a, it's metaphorically. A, it's sort of like a modern take on it that's replacing, uh, you know, um, trafficking yeah. with the devil with atheism. Yeah, yeah. 
or a kind of atheism, I suppose. Um, so that's really, I mean, it, it's Britain's life story, it's the Chevalier's life story, and it's Zanoni's life story. So all these figures, and, and I, I got to say again, we are fairly confident in the community of scholars that Emma Harding Britton and Edward Bulwer-Lytton, the author of Zanoni, knew each other and perhaps were in the same occult circle. So occultists did not believe in the spirit world, spiritualists did not believe in the occult will, and the Chevalier became a means for drawing these two worlds together. Is it possible that Britain was inspired by Bulwer-Lytton's novel? Is it possible that she was informed by the stories of India told by French missionaries and merchants? Is it possible that she created her own hybrid occultist-spiritualist ideology and wrote about it under the name of the Chevalier? Of course, we think that is very possible. Yeah. In her last issue of The Unseen Universe, we, we, we leave this to you at home. This is up to you at home <laughs> to decide. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> see if we're see if we're uh, persuading you. If I'm persuading you or not. In her last issue of the Unseen Universe, her penultimate writing project before embarking on the autobiography she would not finish in her lifetime, she spoke to the changing nature of supernatural belief in the Western world and the place she saw for herself in this subculture. The chief tendency of the public work in the spiritualism of today is to drag down the cause to the level of the rank and file of the people, rather than to aim at lifting it up and elevating the popular mind to the appreciation of a movement so noble that it at once solves one of the greatest problems of the ages, namely the unity of science and religion. In 21st century America, it's difficult not to sympathize with a woman who sought the highest reaches of otherworldly wisdom but fell short in her ability to convey it to a hostile, doctrinaire mass, untrusting of experts of any kind. Does that sound like anybody you know? <laughs> what do you want me to say? <laughs> what do you want me to say, Rob? I don't want you to call anybody out in particular. We're really talking like a whole class of people, right, who are unwilling to, to yeah. question their doctrinaire beliefs. And, and we try not to be such people, especially, you know, my occulty listeners, uh, all you guys out there. Uh, we are supposed to be the open-minded ones, right? Who are open to different traditions and explore different traditions and, and don't adhere to any, you know, fixed dogmas. And, and that's what yeah. Britain's really being beaten down by is these fixed dogmas. Educate the soul in the purest emotions, the noblest aspirations, and the deeds and thoughts of universal kindness. Train the mind to research into the depths of nature, the schools of arts, and the laws of science. Fit the body by temperance and use in every available direction, and earth life work is done. While this undertaking may have proved a thankless task too much for Britain to shoulder by herself, she still believed in the absolute value of sharing the truth as she saw it as widely as possible, on the chance that it might elevate some lost soul, seeking God on the hard and often desolate trek that is our cosmic journey. And that's my argument, uh, and that's my story. <laughs> that's all I have to say about the Chevalier and Emma Harding Britain. You did it. Did it? Did it make sense? think it did yeah. i mean a lot of like what you said like just about especially like i don't know how she like wanted i don't know was on a, a quest to like piece things together to make it make sense i feel like everyone can kind of get that right now that's where we're at that's where we're often at yeah. that's the place we be all right olivia bring us on home adjourn and declare close this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors till such a time as we get together and do it again please consider donating on patreon and as i said at the beginning 
do subscribe and uh, drop us a review if you get a few minutes. A plus and what have you. Today, our voices included a host of folks, Aubrey Radford, Hunter Sheeler, Bree Litterall, Johnny Cook, Dan Rosendale, and Savannah Verrett. I am joined, as almost always, by Grandmaster Olivia Littereau. It's me, and yep, always, just the two of us. Just the two of us. Make it if we try. (laughs) We made it. We did. We made it through the first season. Yep. Now on to the second season. Um, so yes, we are going on to Lady Magic next. Ooh. Ladies who are magical. So my favorite thing, my favorite topic, really. There is this notion in the culture, right, Olivia, that women are particularly attuned to religious, spiritual, occult power. Is that, yeah. Am I right? For sure. So we want to figure out where that idea comes from by tracing the stories of some famous lady occultists. Of, of different stripes. So we're going to do um, stories about some uh, young girls who were visited by poltergeists, and we're going to talk about another couple more famous mediums, and we're going to talk about Joan of Arc, even. So it's going to be exciting. Super relatable content. Do some Wicca. Yeah, it's going to be a good time. Yeah. Uh, so my name is Rob C. Thompson. I am your sup- supreme. I am your, your supreme hierophant. I'm rushing my way out of this. Uh, And uh, I thank you for listening. We will catch you next time here on Occult Confessions.